that. Is that all right? Okay. Good evening, everyone. For those of you who are not quite familiar with me, I don't know. I feel like I've met just about everyone, but if I haven't said hello to you yet, I'm Frankie Espinoza. Um, moved down uh, five months ago to start a PA school program in Fort Lauderdale, and so um, I just wanted to acknowledge that it's an honor and a privilege to be able to speak in front of every one of you, and just uh, so grateful for the fellowship here at Boulevard Bible Chapel. And so um, I guess to begin, I was going to go ahead and read Psalm 8. It's a few verses, only nine verses, and then go ahead and uh, open the meeting in a word of prayer. So Psalm 8, I'll be reading from uh, the English Standard Version, but the PowerPoint has references in the New King James. Sorry for all you King James users. Um, For understanding, it was just easier to use the study, those two versions. And so um, I'll go ahead and read, starting in verse 1, of course. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, we ask that you can allow our hearts to bow before you and just to be entirely submissive to you. And we ask that as we continue in this study and uh, reflect in your word, that the Spirit may speak through and allow for understanding and wisdom as we delve into the doctrine that you presented to us. And we thank you for your word that you've provided as a guide map for our lives. And we ask that you can bless the study. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to try to be still, but I move a lot. I'm very expressive with how I speak. So if I move, don't let that concern you. It's just kind of how I go. And so um, you can go ahead and do my thing. Did you already go? You're on top of things. All right. So Psalm 8, as I read through, is I think the beginning of the Messianic Psalm series that we're starting. And so within this particular psalm, there's so much cross-referencing. And that's one of the amazing things that, when you begin to study and really look into the way that David constructed the psalm, so much hidden meaning. There's a lot to dive into, and there's um, multiple references throughout the scripture to this particular psalm and many of the other ones, especially this one, and even from the beginning. And so I kind of wanted to delve a little bit into even before the psalm itself, looking at the introduction, the way that King David kind of crafts this particular psalm. So in the King James Version, which I liked how it started, is to the chief musician. Um, So we have the audience. Um, As you go through, you'll see that King David kind of made particular references to different individuals with certain psalms. And so this was to indicate that he wanted this 
certain psalm, which many of them were songs themselves to be performed by a certain individual. And so this one, there's a significance to it that I'm, I'll get into, I promise. Um, if I follow rabbit trails, they all come back. I promise you that. Um, to the chief musician, and so the ESV says to the choir master. And so we have our audience there. After that, we have upon Giddeth, which is a particular instrument. It's a sound attributed to this psalm. And then, of course, we have a psalm of David, King David, our author. And so where is the significance in this interesting word, the Giddeth? If you look at other psalms, you'll see again references to upon Shechemineth, upon Mixeth. Those are just examples of different instruments that David refers to. So this one struck me in a very interesting way. It's also seen in the 81st and the 84th Psalm. And the Giddith is particularly a derived instrument. It's a stringed instrument from Gath, which is a Philistine city. So what's interesting here is, for those of you who have examined the life of David in the scripture, of course, he played the harp. So he has a personal connection to a stringed instrument. And so this instrument gives it a particular tone, a particular type of song. Just as we have our different genres, this instrument was to be played a certain way. So you can go ahead, please. Thank you. And so a little bit into the history. Since I mentioned that the Giddith is an instrument from Gath, we have, just for background information, the city of the Philistines, if you look on the left side, you'll see that Gath is towards the confederation of the Philistines. And what's interesting about the city of Gath is multiple things that I'll get into. The first one is of its proximity to the Valley of Ella, where David had his famous confrontation with Goliath. The second one as well, with the city of Gath, is that's where Goliath hails from. If you look in genealogies and the chronology, Goliath hails from Gath. Thanks. So just to refer back to provide context, um, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'll be reading different portions in here, not the entire chapter, but just different portions that really start to tie in why we're getting into the history of this psalm because it plays such a key role in the way that David wrote this song. So starting in 1 Samuel 17 and reading in verse 3. So this is the classic David and Goliath chapter, of course. And so it reads, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So we have our confirmation there that Goliath does hail from there. Scoot down a little bit further to verse 34, simply for the sake of time and for the study. Verse 34 reads, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me 
I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So we have a background here, right? We have King David understands fully that God has given him this dominion over the beasts of the field, over lions and bears, the greatest adversaries that King David knows at this time. They're the biggest threats to his flock. So even despite understanding that he has this dominion, he's giving every bit of glory to God. He's saying that God has delivered me. The Lord has delivered me. Continuing down into verse, and this is the portion that's posted right here, is verse 45, reading from there. Then David said to the Philistine, now when he's confronting Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines to this day, to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And so King David is already acknowledging God's power throughout this entire portion as he's speaking to Goliath, understanding fully well that he's going to have to fight the fight. David will have to put the stone in the sling, and conquer Goliath. And yet, God has all control. God has delivered David and the people of Israel already and given them the victory. Now, a little sidebar that I wanted to mention about Goliath, just to kind of even glorify God even more, even something that I came across research was, there are scholars and there are um, those who study the Old Testament who created and devised this theory that Goliath was more of a brute than a giant himself, than a warrior. And there was a school of thought that existed um, in the 80s that began to really take form that Goliath was simply this lumbering, you know, tall man that really didn't have much function. What they claimed was, I'll get a little medical here, um, that he had acromegaly, which is a condition where you have a tumor in your pituitary gland that causes you to have too much growth hormone and you just grow to this excess size. But there's side effects to this. You're slow. You have tunnel vision, barely able to function. So it's just this behemoth, and that's really all it is. And yet it's really intriguing to see how God's perfect design comes into play. In First Chronicles, I'll just read it briefly, chapter 20, verse 6 through 8. It says, And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, David struck him down. These were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So it's amazing how even science defends the truth of God. And why is that? Because a tumor... It's not genetic. 
And yet we can understand, even a medical student can understand that if Goliath was a descendant, he had this inherent built genetic code to be gigantic. And we know that Goliath was a warrior, defender of the people. And that particular fact, the reason why I wanted to mention that to you is because it makes David's victory over Goliath that much more monumental. It makes it that much more unforeseen, just of greater magnitude. So we can go to the next one. And so we'll dive into Psalm 8. And so this particular song, all these connections that we're seeing, upon the Giddith, referring to back an instrument of Gath, it's really hard to find it just coincidence that David exuded this song and wasn't keeping in mind the victory that God gave him over Goliath. It's almost impossible to look past that and to think that this psalm is not one of commemoration, of adoration and worship towards just how in control God is. So looking in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, where we started, we see the plainly seen glory of God in his creation as there's reference to the heavens and the earth. And so I'll read the verse again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so David is acknowledging not only the reverent Yahweh name, O Lord, the covenant name that God has the Israelites call him, but also our Lord, acknowledging personal intimacy with God, our Lord, possession. It's just something undeserving but yet we can claim and hold on to. In all the earth establishes that God is not only particular, although he has, of course, we see the promises towards the people of Israel. It doesn't end there. God's reign and his love is towards all of mankind. And he has set your glory above the heavens, that the earth alone can't contain the glory of God. And the excellence of God. Next one. Thank you. So verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. And so here we have more continuing victory of God in what he does. And so we see it's an interesting analogy to have babies and nursing infants because of their helpless nature. It's funny how God really mirrors mankind in Scripture when we find ourselves in our own helpless nature. And so those are some references that I wanted to include to kind of just continue to cement, again, the power of God. We have 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And then the reference from Matthew comes after Jesus Christ had cleansed the temple in righteous anger. It says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were displeased. There was an acknowledgement, even in children, interesting enough, that the children acknowledged, not the son of God, that Christ had been claiming to be, but the son of David, the son of man, 
These things are not in here by accident. I assure you that God's word is living and active in any portion. And so we see this reference to very unlikely sources of, of, of strength. Babes and nursing infants crying out. To still the enemy and the avenger, there's the display of strength that's entirely unexpected. And a particular place that we can find this is with the story of Job, of course. We see Job, this man of great possession, of great wealth. He had everything he could have asked for as a man on earth. And yet Satan asked for permission to rob him of these things, yet only spare his life. And God is sovereign even in the suffering. Because Satan finds his way in and torments Job and takes his things. But then he's not heard from again after the first two chapters. God's victory ultimately through Job is what matters and what lasts. And it's what remains as a remnant of just how powerful God is. Just keep going if you're all right with it. All right, there we go. Okay, so Psalm 8, verse 3 then. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So here we have the sheer extent of God's glory. And we have a reference now to heavenly bodies, the moon and the stars. Simply the thought of how much power is contained in God's mere fingers is overwhelming. And there's some facts that I'm sure that many of you have heard over and over, but I repeat them simply as reference to the design and creation of God. With the bare naked eye, a man can see in between 5,000 to about 6 million stars, depending on their place on the earth. With a four-inch telescope, that extends from six million to about two billion. With a 200-inch telescope in an observatory, it can be up to 20 billion stars. And these facts are repeated, and as I go through them and, and I see them and I repeat them to all of you, it's not simply to be in awe of those facts, but to let us never stop being in awe of God and what he's created. And even as David acknowledges this, we see that God is perfectly orchestrating his glory thousands of years ago, even through now. Next one. Thank you. Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And this ties perfectly into the last one because we think of all that God has designed and think of everything that he's put together with one point of view, 6,000 stars, most of which have already died because of the distance that it takes for light to travel. That's astonishing that we're seeing stars that have perished already and we're simply seeing the light still traveling and David just can't help but think of this glory that somehow is in mankind. What is man 
that you are mindful of him. And so, again, as I put up there, but I repeat, the greatness of the heavens and the relative smallness of man, David doesn't ask whether God is mindful, but why? Why does God care for us? Why does God visit us? The son of man that you should visit him. We have the personal intimacy as mentioned before in our lives and how God is attached to us and thinks and cares for us. Next one. There's a shift here in verse 5 where we had now a hymn. And it was seen in verse 4 a little bit, but now it's more directed towards the shift of focus. For you have made him a little lower than the angels or heavenly beings and other versions and crowned him with glory and honor. The wording here again is significant because it's put here as a little lower than the angels rather than made him a little higher than the beasts. When I was considering this, it shifts our view up rather than to look down. And yet isn't that what we do? When we try to think of the glory of God and as we go about in our daily lives, we turn our backs on God. The one who we're made to reflect and look like, and instead we look down on each other and on animals and have become more like those. See, it's very difficult to truly grasp on a daily basis what God has put together. It's a challenge. It's impossible to accomplish it consistently. And yet God reminds us every day. And I've crowned him with glory and honor. So in reference here is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, with the authority and power of God, coupled with the humility and capacity to die of man. We have a full body of work. And this is how perfect and intricate God's plan is because, of course, Jesus Christ maintaining his reign as king, his position as God, the son of God. And yet to die, he needed to take on the form of flesh. But what's astounding is that David is acknowledging this. Thousands of years before that baby was born in Nazareth. Matthew 3.17 is a big reference point. And God the Father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Acknowledging what Jesus Christ did on this earth. Next one. So we have verses 6 through 8. I grouped these together because interestingly enough, they mirror another portion that we see. I'll go ahead and read verses 6 through 8 and see if you can kind of try and make an association in your mind of where else we see very similar language. And it's, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. 
If you were thinking Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then you're doing great. If you somehow made that in your mind, then I'm impressed. But those set of verses are almost identical to this portion right here. And so interestingly enough, as you see, I have it referenced, but it shows that David was very familiar with God's scripture and very acquainted with the truths of God to be able to reflect and ponder even perhaps by memory, unsure, but what God had said about the position of man and the dominion that he has to reflect God's glory. You see, we've been given all this authority. We've been given this unique inheritance, and that's that we're made in God's image, right, in Genesis. And that's only for us. The only beings that possess that, the angels can't even claim the same. And we have that to hold on to. You have put all things under his feet, all things. The reign of Jesus Christ, the dominion of man. And yet, Jesus Christ stooped down to our level for our sakes. To turn the Son of God into the Son of Man required passing multiple levels. And that's something that we can't understand. We only appreciate it and are grateful in all adoration and worship as we continue to, work, continue to reflect on that. Every time I speak, and this is just a sidebar, honestly, um, <laughs> I mention my mother in some way or another, and I really can't help it. It just kind of happens. Interestingly enough that I mentioned there, um, there's two portions in Psalm that make reference to David acknowledging his mother as a close maidservant of the Lord. And we see it in Psalm 86.16 and Psalm 116.16. I won't read those. You can mark those down. But David makes reference to the fact that the teachings of his mother played a huge influence in his life. And so I simply want to say that um, a mother's foundation that she sets for her children can create incredible ramifications, as we clearly see with King David and the things that he did in his life, exemplifying the glory of God, and his mother played a huge role in that. My mother's not here, but I just thought I should make mention to that since she's not, and she's usually been here when I've spoken, so we can go to the next one. So we see the mirror of where the verses we read before are in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Um, you can turn there because I will read from there real briefly just to provide context for um, for those previous portions that David refers to. So Hebrews 2 and verse 6 says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And this is where we see a transition from before. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was only fitting that he, for whom by and for whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And it's a continuation of this thought that God's design is so perfect. There's not a single gap in what God has orchestrated in his plan for the salvation of mankind and using his, the Son of God as redemption and as glorification of how great our God is. And we see that. It's a continuation of that thought. Thousands of years between passages, Genesis to Psalms, to Hebrews, different languages, three different men speaking, yet all conveying one message, preaching one truth. And that's that God sent his one and only son to live, to die, to be buried, and to rise again for all of mankind to show the glory of God. It almost leaves me speechless. It's, there's nothing like it. There's nothing on this earth. There's no document. There's no manuscript that matches the word of God in its cross-references, in its power, and how true it is. Next one. And so here we have our conclusion. Full circle back. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Praising God all over again in utter submission. Knowing that what God has created in mankind and this position on this earth speaks volumes not about himself, not about any of us, but rather the glory of God. And what he's designed. We have a celebration of the surpassing majesty of God. We marvel at his endless grace in sending his only son for us. So we have three truths to hold for those of you who take notes or remember things in threes. That's how I study all the time now because it's a lot of material. Threes is the best way to remember. So God made man. We saw that in Genesis, very clearly expressed, to have dominion that reflects God's glory. We have God made man to be like Christ, and we see that in the way David expresses his psalm, in that there's a parallel, right? You can't quite superimpose it, but it follows that pattern where man is a little lower than the angels, but so was Jesus Christ because he needed to die on that cross for us. And the third truth is that God made man for a higher and worthy purpose designed to glorify 
him alone for what God has done for us, what he is doing, and what he's promised us, right? (laughs) An inheritance like any other that we possess because Jesus Christ came to this earth, this God-forsaken earth, walked on cursed soil that is breaking down as we speak. The Son of God was made so humble, a source of strength that was unlikely. Remember how he was honored as the king? He came riding in on a donkey. He was a baby born in a very, very, very neglected place for us. So as we continue in our worship and our praise every day of our lives, and we continue to even study these psalms, just understanding if there's one thing that I can drive home for every single one of you, it's that God has no gaps, no holes in his plan. He's covered everything up. And that is an assured anchor in our lives that we don't ever have to let go. That God's taken care of everything. If we choose to love him, acknowledge his son and that gift of love for us. We can close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again so much for this time in your word. We praise you and we love you for your one and only son who was given, led as a lamb to the slaughter to shed his blood. Many of us have saying, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We thank you for these truths that you provided to us even as we examine and study the Psalms and other portions of Scripture, understanding that you've given these to us that we can see your boundless love, your grace, and the mercy that you've given us. So once again, we conclude another meeting and another study just in awe of everything that you've given us and the love that you have for us. We probably sing in the name of our precious Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.